Welcome back to the Oscar Project Podcast, the show where I discuss Oscar-nominated films year by year. I am your host, Jonathan Etreberg, and today I am discussing the lost nominees of 1927 and 1928. Truth be told, not all of these films are truly lost, and some are considered to be rediscovered films. But right now, let's consider all of them in this list unavailable to me at the current time. The eight films I will be covering in this episode are Glorious Betsy, Sorrel and Son, The Devil Dancer, The Dove, The Magic Flame, The Noose, The Private Life of Helen of Troy, and The Way of All Flesh. So without further ado, let's jump right into the films. First up is Glorious Betsy. This is one of those films that is not lost, but based on my research, the only available copy in existence is currently with the Library of Congress. Unfortunately, I don't live in near Washington, and I don't really have the time right now to visit, nor do I even know if the print would be available for a screening if I were able to get there. The film itself is based on a play of the same name by Rita Johnson Young that first ran for 24 performances on Broadway in September of 1908. It was a Warner Brothers picture, released on April 26, 1928, and has a running time of around 80 minutes on either seven or eight reels of film. It was directed by Alan Crossland and Gordon Hollingshead, with a screenplay by Anthony Coldway and intertitles by Jack Jarmuth. Now that's something I want to pause there and just talk about a couple of things there. Obviously, we don't really have intertitles in films anymore, and you'll notice that a lot of these first films that I talk about had specific credits for who wrote the intertitles. So what are the intertitles? Those are, if you ever watch an old silent film, you don't get the the actor's voices in the soundtrack. It's usually just music if you're hearing anything at all. And any of the conversation they have, any of the reactions that they need to capture in words are put up on the screen And that's what those intertitles are. And obviously, since we have probably 99.999% of all movies that are made today have speaking parts in them, we don't need those anymore. Um, But back in the day when uh, this was really at the turn of the time when um, films were starting to have synchronized sound, we'll talk a little bit later this season about the film The Jazz Singer, which is widely considered to be the first uh, synchronized sound. There's famous parts where Al Jolson is singing in that film, um, and it was obviously a a big step forward at that time. It's something that um, they recognized in those first year of the Oscars with a special uh, writing category there, but we didn't really need to have that uh, once time went on. The other thing I want to mention is uh, most of these films that we talk about in this episode, I'll give you a rough estimate of how long they are in terms of minutes, but also talking about how many reels of film that is. Um, in general, you'll, you'll see as I go through and give you the, the lengths and the number of reels that a reel of film is generally coming out to about 10 minutes of runtime for the film. Um, but I think it's important to kind of think about this in the way that people at the time, um, especially even the projectionists, would be thinking of things in terms of how long these films were. So let me keep going here. So we're, we're still talking about Glorious Betsy. And this particular film stars uh, Dolores Costello as Betsy Patterson of of the title and Conrad Nigel as Jerome Bonaparte. We'll get to that in a minute. 
It was nominated for the Best Writing Adaptation category, and it depicts the real-life courtship, marriage, and breakup of Jerome Bonaparte, brother of the famous French leader Napoleon. Now, Jerome apparently married a woman from the American South named Elizabeth Patterson, or Betsy Patterson, and due to the disapproval of his brother, Jerome's marriage to Patterson was annulled, and he later wed Katerina of Wurttemberg. And again, I apologize for any mispronunciation for any of these names. I'm not very good with German. The main language other than English that I have some experience with is Spanish. So please forgive any of my pronunciations on this podcast. Uh, the one other note that I have here is that Jerome and Betsy Patterson did have a child um, when they were married. They named him Jerome Napoleon, and he is also depicted in the film. Moving on to our next film, which is Sorrel and Son. This film was considered lost, but in 2005, the Academy Film Archive did show a partially restored print. I have not been able to find a version of it for my viewing at this time, so we'll have to consider this within our Lost Films episode. The film is based on a 1925 novel of the same name by Warwick Deeping. It was distributed by United Artists and released in New York City on November 12, 1927, followed a few weeks later across the country on December 2, 1927. This one has a running time of around uh, 100 minutes or 10 reels and was directed by Herbert Brennan and Ray Listener with a screenplay adapted by Elizabeth Meehan and written by Herbert Brennan. Sorrel and Son stars H.B. Uh, Warner as Stephen Sorrel, Anna Q. Nilsson as Dora Sorrel, and Niels Astor as Kit Sorrel. Herbert Brennan was nominated for the Best Director of a Dramatic Picture Award in 1929, and the film focuses on the title character, Stephen Sorrel, who is raising his son Kit on his own after the mother deserts the child and his uh, father. Uh, Stephen Sorrel struggles through a number of menial jobs. They take a toll on his health, as well as taking a toll on his dignity. And throughout the film, his only solace is that his son, Kit, will ultimately be better off because of uh, all of the hard work he's put in. The twist comes um, that after telling the boy that his mother is dead, she suddenly shows up years later and tries to re-enter her son's life. And obviously you can imagine that this is going to make things difficult for the father to explain and uh, some hard decisions that he has to make um, as time goes on. Our next film up is The Devil Dancer. I don't have much on this film, but it was really the first of the bunch that is truly lost. This film was distributed by United Artists and premiered in Los Angeles on November 3rd, 1927, with a full release on November 19th, 1927. This one has a running time of 73 minutes on eight reels of film. It was directed by Fred Niblo, with a screenplay by Alice B.G. Miller and intertitles by Edwin Justice Mayer. It stars Gilda Gray as Takla, the devil dancer herself, and Clive Brook as Stephen Athelstan. It was nominated for the category of Best Cinematography, and according to a print ad in May of 1928 I was able to find, the film was about two men fighting for the devil dancer, one for money and one for love. That's about all I have about the film, so we'll continue and move on to The Dove. This is a film that, again, is not entirely lost, um, but five out of the nine reels of the film are missing. The remaining reels do still reside with the Library of Congress. This is another one that was based on a play 
This uh, was a, the same name by Willard Mack. This one ran for 48 performances on Broadway between August and October of 1925. The Dove was also a United Artists picture that premiered on December 31st, 1927, with a full release on January 7th, 1928, and a running time again of around 90 minutes on nine film reels. The film was directed and adapted by Ronald West, with intertitles by Wallace Smith, starring Norma Talmadge as Dolores and Noah Beery as Don Jose Maria Isandoval. It won the award for Best Art Direction for William Cameron Menzies, whom I mentioned yesterday, won for a number of different films. The story is about Don Jose, who falls in love with the dancing girl, Dolores, who ultimately rejects his advances because she is in love with another man. Next up is The Magic Flame. This film is potentially lost, although Wikipedia notes that the first five reels of the film were at some point housed at the George Eason House, which coincidentally is in my hometown of Rochester, New York, but others have disputed that fact. I haven't been able to reach out to the staff there yet at the museum to see if they've heard anything about that, but it's definitely on my list to check out and see if they have those, film, those reels in their archives. And again, you'll have to excuse my German here. Um, the film is based on a German play, Konig Harlequin, or The Harlequin King, by Rudolf Lothar. And during my research, I was not able to find any additional information about this play, how many times it was performed, or when it was originally produced. The film was distributed again by United Artists and released on September 18, 1927, with a running time of around 90 minutes on nine reels. It was directed by Henry King, with intertitles by George Marion Jr. and Nellie Revel. Starring Ronald Coleman as Tito the Clown and Vilma Banki as Bianca the Acrobat, it was nominated for Best Cinematography, along with George Barnes' other films, The Devil Dancer and Sadie Thompson. The film pr promoted itself as a Romeo and Juliet story of the circus when it was released. Moving on, the next film up is The Noose. This one is not entirely lost, but the only copy known to exist is in the film archives at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. I do live a little closer to New York City than I do to Washington for the Library of Congress, but again, I'm recording this right around Christmas time, so there's no time to travel down there just to see a movie that may or may not even be available. The film is based on a play of the same name by Willard Mack that first ran for 197 performances on Broadway between October of 1926 and April of 1927. The, the play was also turned into a film a second time in 1936 with the film I'd Give My Life. The Noose was a first National Pictures film released originally on January 29th, 1928 with a running time of around 80 minutes on eight film reels. It was directed by John Francis Dillon with a screenplay by James T. O'Donohoe and titles by Garrett Graham. The Noose stars Richard Barthelmus as Nicky Elkins, for which he was nominated for Best Actor, and Montague Love as Buck Gordon. It depicts a crook who blackmails the governor because of information he has about the past of the governor's wife. Sounds intriguing. I would actually like to take a look at this one if I ever find it. Next up, and we're almost done, we got two left here, so uh, stay with me. Next up is The Private Life of Helen of Troy. Now, only 27 or to 30 minutes of this film are reported to survive, 
and are currently preserved at the British Film Institute. It's based on a novel by the same name uh, by John Erskine from 1925, and it was another film released by First National Pictures with a New York City premiere on December 9, 1927, and a general release on January 8, 1928. This one only had a running time of 57 minutes, believe it or not. It seems really short, especially when we're used to films today like The Irishman, uh, over two hours, almost three hours, uh, Avengers, over three hours. Um, a lot of our big films are over two hours in running time. So 57 minutes is actually a pretty short film by today's standards. It was directed by Alexander Korda with a screenplay by Gerald C. Duffy and intertitles by Ralph Spence and Casey Robinson. The star of the film is Maria Corda. Yes, that would be the director's wife. And she plays uh, the title character, Helen. It also stars Louis Stone as Menelaus and Ricardo Cortez as the love interest, Paris. This was the only film specifically nom nominated for best writing in title writing. And as I mentioned before, with the coming of the talkies, the category was eliminated following the first Academy Awards. Now you probably know the name Helen of Troy as the woman <coughs> with the face that launched the thousand ships. And if you've seen the recent uh, film Troy from 2004, you probably know the basic story here. Helen runs off to Sparta with Paris. Menelaus is understandably upset and decides to go to war against the Spartans. I'm not sure if they showed in this film, but in Troy they did ultimately end up with the famous use of the Trojan horse by the Spartans to sneak into the city and defeat the Trojans. Last up is the film The Way of All Flesh. And this is actually probably the film that I would be most intrigued to take a look at if it is ever found. It is another that is truly considered to be lost, although the UCLA Film and Television Archive does have roughly five minutes of footage that still does exist. The film, I believe, is an original story, as I've not been able to find any uh, adaptation notes. Um, however, there is also a novel of the same title by Samuel Butler that was published in 1903. However, this film has no relation to that novel. The Way of All Flesh was distributed by Paramount Pictures with a New York City release on June 25, 1927, and a wide release several months later on October 2, 1927. It has a running time of around 90 minutes on nine reels and was directed by Victor Fleming with writing by Lajos Biro, Jules Firthman, and Julian Johnson from a story by Pearlie Poor Sheehan. I love some of these names, by the way. You don't get these sorts of names today. The film stars Emil Jannings as August Schiller, a bank clerk who is asked to transport $1,000 in securities from his branch in Milwaukee to Chicago. $1,000 may not sound like much, but keep in mind, we are talking about 1927, 1928. So $1,000 went a lot farther than it does today. While on the train, Schiller is seduced by a woman um, who takes him to a saloon and uh, convinces him to have a few drinks with her. Ultimately, he wakes up to find that the securities are gone. He does find the woman and pleads with her to return the money, but is knocked unconscious and dragged to a nearby railroad track by the owner of the saloon himself. As the uh, saloon owner is uh, trying to empty his pockets and take him for everything that he has, Schiller awakens, fights with the saloon owner, and ultimately pushes him into the path of an oncoming train, killing him. Schiller is despondent and despairs that he's killed a man, um, but sees something in the newspaper, apparently, that 
the body was mistaken for his own as all of the identification had been removed. His family, for some reason, goes on believing that their father and husband is dead, um, and apparently the film skips ahead many years when his son has grown up. He's a successful musician, which apparently is something that Schiller himself had been teaching him when, uh, before he left on this trip. Again, I want to see this film just to figure out why his family is, uh, why he doesn't just go back to his family and say, hey, I'm still here, I'm still alive. But um, who knows, we may never be able to see that again if the film truly is lost. Um, as I mentioned, Jannings uh, received the award for Best Actor for his role in this film, as well as The Last Command, which we will cover later this season. So I think that's going to wrap things up for episode two. Um, as I mentioned yesterday, please check out the website, theoscarproject.com, or come find me at Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash theoscarproject. Keep in mind, there is also that Oscar Project discussion group on Facebook that you can join if you want to uh, get into the conversation about movies, uh, both old movies that we'll be talking about in relating to these episodes of the podcast, but also new films that are coming out and the, uh, the Oscar nominations that will be coming out in just a, a week or so here in January as well. Please be sure to come back for our next episode of the Oscar Project podcast, where I will be discussing the Charlie Chaplin film, The Circus. Uh, it's really a fun film. It's entertaining, a little bit sad, um, but I, I think you'll really like it. Um, it's available. There is a, a copy on YouTube. You can check it out. Um, so I urge you to go check it out before listening to that episode. And uh, so please come back for that next week. And thanks for listening. I will see you at the movies.